Hello, welcome to another edition of Legends of Film. Today we have an interview with director Andrew Davis. Mr. Davis has directed such movies as The Fugitive, Under Siege, Code of Silence, Holes, and Stony Island. Stony Island will be showing at the Downtown Public Library located on 615 Church Street. The movie will be shown Saturday, August 10th, 2013 at 2 p.m. Mr. Davis gave the Nashville Public Library special permission to show the movie. Now, on to the interview. You've been called a thinking man's action director. I'm just curious, how do you see yourself? <laughs> well, I'd like to be thinking. You know, it's important to be thinking. Um, you know, I became an action director almost by default. Um, I had been a cameraman, and I had shot a lot of films, and I came from a tough neighborhood in Chicago, so I knew how to deal with tough guys and, and, and action uh, in that sense. But uh, uh, it wasn't something I pursued. I was a journalism major, and I was interested in political issues, and I think that that somehow reflected in the package. The, the original story... Uh, to that movie was set in all in Camp David, and I wanted to move it into a, a big city setting and be able to take elements of what were the conspiracy theories of the Kennedy assassination and weave them into a political thriller set in the Cold War. So I guess there was this action component, a chase, a search that we had in the story, but I think that my quote, the reference to the thinking man, tried to take a bit of my journalism background and my sense of uh, history and weave it into this story. Haskell Wexler, the director of Medium Cool and the cinematographer of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and In the Heat of the Night, was a mentor to you, and what was the most valuable filmmaking lesson you learned from him? When I met Haskell was in 1968, and uh, he, he was I was just getting out of the University of Illinois in Champaign. The Democratic Convention was coming to Chicago that summer during the heat of the anti-war movement, the civil rights movement, the, the murders of King and Bobby Kennedy. It was a very volatile summer. And I worked on a phantom unit shooting footage of the what was going on in, in the in the streets of Chicago with the demonstrators. And what Haskell had done is he wove a story around a real political event. And uh, I think that had resonance with me. And if you watch The Fugitive, which is a film I'm well known for, there's a sequence where uh, Tommy Lee Jones chases Harrison Ford down the stairs of the of City Hall, of, the, of, the, of, a, of a lockup where they're looking for a one-armed man, and it spills out into a sequence during the St. Patrick's Day Parade. Well, all of that cinema and that technique was basically derived from knowing how to take real events and weave them into a story, which I think I got from Haskell. Also, there's a brief scene in Stony Island of Mayor Daly's funeral. Was that, too, the actual funeral of Mayor Daly? It was, yes, Absolutely. And it's, just, it's funny because I wanted to shoot the St. Patrick's Day Parade for Stony Island, and then Richard Daly died, so we filmed his funeral instead. And I got the St. Patrick's Day Parade in The Fugitive. On the topic of Haskell Wexler, um, like you said, you were an assistant on Medium Cool, and you were in the middle of the 68 Democratic Convention protest activity. Uh, 
Was there a moment or a memory of that time that you have that you always kept with you? Oh, many, many moments. As a matter of fact, uh, Haskell Wexler and I went back to Chicago with another colleague named Mike Gray who wrote China Syndrome. We had all been in Chicago in 68, and we went back last spring or last summer to document the NATO uh, demonstrations that were going on and and shot some more video. And, and there was a, a interesting kind of mimicry of the police force used and the, the amount of uh, police presence in the streets that time. But what I remember probably most vividly from Medium Cool was the protesters were told to disperse outside of the uh, Hilton Hotel. They were not allowed to meet anymore after nights of, uh, of, of police attacking demonstrators, tear gas, a lot of arrests. And Dick Gregory invited the whole crowd to go to his house, to take a walk to his house, which, of course, was uh, a pretense for walking to the south side past where the convention was going on at the International Amphitheater. And there were tanks at 14th Street, National Guard tanks, facing the uh, the crowds as they walked south on Michigan Avenue. And there were only there was only one or two camera crews on the other side of those tanks with the protesters. And I was in one of those camera crews with a guy named Barry Feinstein, who was a documentary and a still photographer famous for his album covers with Bob Dylan and Peter, Paul, and Mary. And it was quite horrific because as the tear gas flew and delegates, these were actually Democratic delegates who were actually marching, uh, you know, people really got hurt and sick and we were like the only film crew on the other side documenting it. So that was pretty dramatic. But the whole experience and the, the times were very, very full of uh, incredible revelations and challenges in terms of what was going on in the country. started out as a director of photography on a movie called Private Parts, and this was the directorial debut of Paul Bartel. And since the two of you were starting out, could you discuss the collaboration between you two on this, well, unusual story? Well, I don't know that it was Paul's debut, and I had shot, I think, one or two films before that. We were we were basically working for Roger Corman's brother, Gene Corman, and who had given a lot of well-known people their starts, including Nicholson and Scorsese and all kinds of other people. It was like graduate school. We made these $300,000 movies in 30 days, and Private Parts was unique because the the other... I did four films for Corman. This film... As a cinematographer, this film was done on a studio set. It was a very traditional kind of uh, production in the sense that we we worked on location for some of it, and then other parts of it we actually built sets. So that was sort of new for me. The first time I'd worked on a movie where there were real sets. Uh, John Retzik was the production designer. And Paul was a very unique, interesting character. I really enjoyed working with him. Unfortunately, he, he died at a young age. But it was a very kinky movie, you know, about a man who uh, had repressed sexuality and was living in a fleabag downtown hotel with his, whose mother was a sort of a domineering character who ran the place. And uh, I remember when we did that film, you know, we were working in the sort of the bowels of, of downtown Los Angeles at the King Edward Hotel, which had been a flop house for years. We had to take the the grittiness of that hotel and bring it back to our sets. So that was a challenge as a cinematographer. But Paul and I got along really well, and he was a dear friend. And as a matter of fact, he was responsible when Stony Island came out for introducing me to the people who invited me to 
Okay, talk about Stony Island. You co-wrote this and directed it, and could you discuss the origin of the movie? Well, the origin of the movie is the story of my brother, who grew up on the south side of Chicago in a neighborhood that changed from being um, completely white to being completely black, and he was the last white kid who lived in that neighborhood at that time. And my parents refused to move out of their commitment to equality and and fighting racism, and so he stayed in that neighborhood. And I thought, you know, I saw Mean Streets and I saw American Graffiti, and I said, well, here's directors making films about where they grew up and how they grew up. I'll do one like that for myself. I knew he didn't have to pay my brother a lot of money, and and he had these great friends who were musicians. And so it was sort of autobiographical. We both grew up in, in the south side of Chicago. Music was important to me also. I used to be a musician in college. I wrote a, a, a script based upon, you know, this white kid making it in a black neighborhood with music being a common language. Stony Island is a, a neighborhood that's famous for great musicians. I mean, Gene Krupa went to my high school. Louis Armstrong got off the Illinois Central train when he came to Chicago on Stony Island. Gene Krupa, Shaka Khan, Herbie Hancock, Steve Allen, Muddy Waters, all kinds of people from Louisiana and the South came to Chicago and and lived on the South Side in this area near the University of Chicago. So Tammy Hoffs, who wrote the script and produced it with me, uh, was a writer on a film I was a cameraman on called Lepke, a, a gangster film with Tony Curtis about Louis Lepke Buchalter, the famous mobster. And we found out that we both had brothers who had been immersed in the blues. And uh, we decided to collaborate on this uh, uh, script that I had been researching and putting together. And that's how we did it. And the movie was just released for the first time, actually, this year on video, even though it got rave reviews and awards when it first came out, it was sort of suppressed as a as a film that couldn't play in white neighborhoods because black kids could come in. And if you go online, there's um, the link to the making of Stony Island with Quincy Jones and Chuck D and several other people talking about the significance of the movie and interviewing the kids 20-some, 30 years later who have had incredible careers who started off in that movie for the first time. There's a scene in that movie, Stony Island, that I really like. It's where your brother, Richard Davis, and Stony Robertson and Susanna Hoffs are looking at family photos of, I think, Grandpa Moses and others mm-hmm. and tells the background of the history of them. Are they based on true stories? That's the story of my Romanian grandfather, who basically, uh, his brother was in the um, military and as a guard, and, and somebody stole something and he chased him down and grabbed the wrong horse it belonged to the captain and then when they found out that the Jewish guard had taken the captain's horse they killed him and so my great grandfather said none of my other sons are going to serve in this army and he sent my grandfather who was a 13 year old tailor's apprentice to Chicago at that time in your movie the movie you directed Holes there's the character of Caveman and he's suffering from this family curse inflicted on him brought from his great grandfather from the old country. I'm just curious, is that what interests you in directing uh, Holes? Well, you're pretty sharp. Um, Yes, there were themes in Holes that I could absolutely relate to with the Eastern European immigrants. As a matter of fact, the the one change I made to Lewis Sacker's wonderful book, and Lewis, I, I got to write the screenplay with us, was that I added Grandpa living in the apartment with the family. In the book, Grandpa doesn't live with them, but it talks about the curse of generation after generation. 
Well, my great-grandmother lived with us for a short time when I was a kid living in this tiny apartment in Chicago, and I thought, if you want to sell the, the, the generational curse, we can have this grandpa living with them, and, and so that happened. And my father, Nate Davis, actually played grandpa. He's the one who says it's all because you're dirty, no rotten, pig-stealing, great-great-grand. <laughs> well, speaking of your father, you said your father's an actor, Nathan Davis, and you said you in an audio commentary, you said uh, you were lucky to be a son of an actor. Could you just go into why, a little bit more explanation? Well, my father and mother met in the theater in Chicago, and because of that, I was surrounded by actors and who were their friends and writers and creative people like Studs Terkel and Haskell Wexler and 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 so I felt comfortable being around actors and I suppose some of that rubbed off on me. I never really wanted to be an actor. I was in a couple plays and I was a young man at camp. I think that having empathy for what actors go through and what they uh you know, how they struggle to get jobs and have their egos not damaged when they don't get cast in something it gave me some kind of a perspective. I just was very lucky to have worked with my father as much as I did, and and you know when I I met John Malkovich once in Paris, and he's and he referred to me as Nate's kid, which is really flattering because he was he was a very respected uh, actor in Chicago who who did it you know as a young man, then went back to supporting his family as a salesman, and after twenty some years of that, went back to the theater and. And, and won a Tony on Broadway with Grapes of Wrath with the Steppenwolf Company with Gary Sinise and Frank Galati. So, you know, I was lucky to have a father who I could relate to and a mother who understood uh, what it meant to be involved in telling stories in the theater. And, and so uh, that's why I was lucky. Your brother is interviewed, you've mentioned Stud Turkle's, but he's interviewed in Stud Turkle's book, Race, and mm-hmm. uh, and it's in the chapters, Buddies, and I found it interesting. And it, does your brother, Richie Davis, and Joseph Boone, the other person he, uh, Stud's interviewed, are they still buddies? Do they still see each other? They are still friends. They are in touch with each other in Chicago. I think I saw Joe Boone at a screening of Stony Island uh, when it was played at the Siskel Center this last year. They're, I mean, they're they, they're not as close as they were as kids. Uh, Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer, I guess, you know, they are very close. Yes, and Stony Island basically is is sort of the story of that of that, of that relationship in a way. You directed Above the Law, and when I look at your other movies, you've made Holes, The Package, Code of Silence, or Chain Reaction. You have characters or institutions they represent feel they are above the law who are trying to corrupt or frame innocent people who are trying to do right. And what's your attraction to that theme? Well, I think I was interested in being an investigative journalist initially, you know, being a, a whistleblower, a truth teller, a revealer of how the world really works. And in those films, you get to sort of go behind the curtain and, 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 and find out who's doing what and why they're doing it. And so I've always wanted, you know, I'm not interested in, in chases and action and violence for the entertainment value. I wanted, uh, you know, I'm interested in telling a story that maybe has some uh, action in it in those films, and that's why they're commercial, but also leaves you with something that you can, you can chew on, you can think about in terms of how the world really works. In the package, Under Siege, and The Fugitive, you directed Tommy Lee Jones, and you've had a very strong collaboration with him. Could you talk a little bit about your working relationship? 
Well, he's just one of the great actors, as everybody realizes. And I saw Tommy in a movie called Backroads uh, years ago that Marty Ritt directed. He played a boxer, and I think it was with Sally Field. I was just very taken by his 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 genuine quality. And then when the package was offered to me, and we needed a, a strong character who could basically play a kind of sophisticated uh, military operative. I thought Tommy would be great, and I think that you know one of the strengths of that movie is are, are, you know Tommy and Gene working together. And then after that, when Under Siege became available to me, I thought you know, the character he plays in Under Siege, Stranix, is, was originally a kind of Elton Johnish character, and, and when Tommy was there, we we basically decided to make it something that would be more like uh, Paul Butterfield or Stevie Ray Vaughan. And Tommy came on board, my brother's band, if you notice the band and behind him in Under Siege is, is some of the same members of my brother's band. And we had a great time having Tommy become a singer-terrorist. And it was right after the success of Under Siege that I was offered The Fugitive. And, and I said, well, who better to play Samuel Gerard than Tommy? And there was a minute where we had to go through some things at the studio, but then they he was accepted and he won an Academy Award. So I think what's great about our relationship is I give him the freedom to do some of his best work. And he's very, you know, I give him the, the ability to be surrounded by interesting actors and to, you know, allow him to throw the ball in the best way as a good coach would help a quarterback do. I'm always impressed with the casting of your movies, even in smaller parts. You've had Jane Lynch and Dennis Franz, Michael Shannon, Michael Rooker, Joe Pontiano, Ron Dean. Could you discuss the casting process? How well, you- it's, you know, it's, it's, you work, you meet lots of people, you look at videotape, you listen to your casting director's recommendations, and when all is said and done, you try to put the right combination of faces and flavors and people together. You know, casting a movie is like making a great stew. When you when you make a stew, all the ingredients have to blend. You know, I noticed I, I pulled up the credits for the package, so I would remind Harry Harry Lennox is in there, who was a wonderful young actor who was in Chicago at the time. He's become a friend of mine. He's, he's done great work over the years. I, I don't know. I think it's basically instinct. It's it's your sense of reality, your sense of what you want out of the characters, actors who you think are going to be able to bring more than's even on the page of the script. I like actors who improvise, who can add their own two cents to things. You know, Joe Pantoliano's an actor I work with a lot who is a tremendous creative force, you know, and you and, and, and you want people who can take something and, and recommend or take it to the next step. And, you know, in the theater, you get to work with uh, the cast and the writer for a long time before the show goes on. And in a movie, you don't have that liberty. You can do some rehearsing, but generally it's a very time pressured environment and you have to get things done within the eight hour or ten hour day that you're given and there's not a lot of time to improvise well and i've been in some situations where i haven't had scripts that are really realized and we've had to write and rewrite things on the set so you want people who are fast on their feet for that i was watching chain reaction again and i'm impressed about how relevant it is and do you think it was ahead of its time when it was first released i do I think it was way ahead of its time in the sense that the issues of global 
warming, the issues of the control of the uh, oil and coal companies on their profits and, and, and the whole relationship between the government and energy was not really on the table at the time. You know, I, I, it's funny because chain reactions about liberating hydrogen efficiently from water. And I'm very involved in a, in a technology called ocean thermal energy conversion, which uses this, the heat of the sun to create a delta between the cold bottom and the hot equatorial top of the ocean where you can make consistent energy. Electricity can be tapped from that delta. And the Navy is actually very interested in this technology now. It's been around for a while, but there hasn't been an economic way to do it. But now it's possible that we may be powering island uh, communities that are near the equator and then using that energy that by itself to separate hydrogen from water and be able to ship it to fuel cells and ports around the world. So there's a chance that that, that goofy technology conceptually that is talked about in, in chain reaction may become a reality someday soon. You directed A Perfect Murder, which is based on the play Dial-In for Murder by Frederick Knott. And did Frederick Knott enjoy the update of his play? You know, I don't know. I never met him, and I didn't know much about it. I do know that the play was, the the, the Dial-M movie was not one of Hitchcock's most famous movies. It was done as a very static movie based on a play that was shot in 3D. So I don't know, you know, what his reaction was to it. You started out, as, like I said, as director of photography, and when you became a director, you hired Frank Tidy, who photographed The Duelist and The Gray Fox. I'm curious, why did you choose him? Well, The Duelist was just a gorgeous movie. It was beautifully lit. You know, and, and I met him, I think he was recommended by uh, Ray Wagner, the producer at the time. And he was just a lovely, charming, he is a lovely, charming fellow who was wonderful to work with. He was very efficient and and, and we got along really well. We did several movies together. As a matter of fact, Frank Tidy shot most of the opening of The Fugitive, which is uncredited. We did, uh, you know, Steel Big Steel Little together, and I think we did about four or five movies together, and Under Siege together. And so, uh, you know, it just he was a great lighter and a, and a really sweet man. John Ford has Monument Valley as a backdrop, and you have Chicago and the L train. And the L train must have a special significance for you because you always feature it prominently in your Chicago movies. Could you just discuss what's the attraction? Well, I grew up on the L. You know, it's how we got around the city. It was the way you got. You know, I used to get get on at 63rd and Stony Island and go downtown. Or we would get off at 63rd and Stony Island and head further south to the mills where we lived. It was the, like, you know, the lifeblood, the veins, the arteries of the city. And you could go and see amazing things out the windows of the train. You could literally look in people's bedrooms or, or their living rooms as you, you stopped at, at different stops. It was scary and made a lot of noise. And you always thought you were going to fall off the tracks. And, and it, was just, it was just life in the city. It's what, you know, it's what kids in cities do. They ride the trains. On every DVD case of the movies you directed, it always says from the man who directed The Fugitive, and it seems to be the film you'll be known for, but do you have any other movies that, you know, that you wish, well, gee, I wish these would get a little bit more attention, too? <laughs> well, you know, they're all your children. Uh, I think I'm really proud of Holes. I think Holes was a, it was a great, great book. And 
I think working with uh, Shia LaBeouf and John Voight in that movie and Sigourney Weaver and Tim Blake Nelson and all the other people involved in that movie was really rewarding. And I'm hoping to do more films that can, re- can that families can relate to. I'm not interested in in, in quote in, in, when you, the word action today usually means chases, shootings, explosions, gunfights. And it's not really something I'm really interested in doing unless it has a real solid reality to it uh, in terms of the politics of the story. I don't want to do it for entertainment's sake. So I'm developing a modern interpretation of Treasure Island, which is based upon uh, the story of Dijon Lafitte. I'm working on a version of Don Quixote called Tom Quixote, which is Tom Jones and Don Quixote blended together, set in 17th century uh, Spain. You know, so those are the kind of things that I'm interested in now. Not that I'm averse to doing political thrillers and things like that, but they have to have some kind of a social resonance for me to be interested in them. Okay, and just the one final question. On one of your audio commentaries, you stated that you were a friend of writer or director Paul Brickman of Risky Business fame, and just whatever happened to him? Well, he's in Santa Barbara. He's a good friend of mine. We see each other all the time. Uh, he did Men Don't Leave after that, and he's basically, he's done some work uh, writing for one of the producers who produced uh, Risky Business. John Avnet has hired him several times as a writer, and I think he basically didn't enjoy directing as much as he did writing. He has a daughter who's a very gifted playwright now, and, and uh, he's a grandpa, and he lives in Santa Barbara, and uh, we see he's a, he plays a lot of music, I'll tell you that. He's a very good musician. I would like to thank Andrew Davis for taking the time from his busy schedule to do the interview and for granting us permission for showing Stony Island. Once again, Stony Island will be showing Saturday, August 10th, 2013 at 2 p.m. at the Downtown Public Library. The music is from the movie The Fugitive by James Newton Howard. <laughs>